Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Jesus, Dietrich, and Me. This is episode number 53, and my name is Tyler. I get to serve as one of the pastors at Family of God Lutheran Church in Southwest Detroit, and typically I am joined by my senior pastor and by our vicar, uh, but both of both of those guys are not here today. Pastor Hill is actually in Guatemala on a short-term mission trip. He's been gone all week, and he won't be back until next Friday. Or I'm sorry, next Saturday. So he'll be here next week on the on the podcast. And uh, Nick has been helping me uh, run the show for the last couple of last couple of days, and so I'm. He's not with me because he is, um, well, this morning I said to take some time for yourself. Go rest, uh, go fish, do whatever you got to do, and uh, and he'll meet me at Family of Cod here uh, in a couple of hours. So uh, y'all are stuck with me, and really what I wanted to do today, um, because I, I wasn't comfortable starting a new a new um, topic, new series uh, without Pastor Jim, I know that a lot of folks tune in just to hear him because he is he is very smart he he's very intellectual and knows a lot of things about especially when it comes to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a lot of the the, the German history so uh, rather than rather than trying to start something with him because we do have a an idea of what we want to do and I think actually next week uh, we're going to begin the podcast uh, on Jesus Dietrich and me but we're going to be looking at a book called the cross of reality and it's basically going to be highlighting uh, Bonhoeffer's theology and Luther's theology and how do those mix and match together. Uh, the, he, he goes into a whole bunch of details about, it's not written by Dietrich, uh, but it's it's written by a, a, another another author that pretty much talks about the, the differences and the, the theologies of the cross from, from both perspectives, from both uh Dietrich and and Martin Luther. So we're excited for that. So what I wanted to do today without uh, starting something new, I did want to give an opportunity for those of you that are newer listeners, uh, a chance to kind of go back in the time machine a little bit. Um, because as, as many of you know, um, there have been a couple episodes that the sound quality just wasn't up to par. Uh, I, I'm an avid, avid podcast listener. And was not happy with the sound quality. You know, when we first started out with this podcast, we were kind of unsure of what, what, how this was all gonna, what was gonna happen with it. And you know, we've we've gathered a, a decent amount of of, uh, of following, and uh, it's been fun for us to do. And but we didn't take a whole lot of time and consideration into the actual quality of the podcast. Not the not the information itself, but just like the sound quality and things like that. And it's been, it's been kind of a, kind of difficult to nail that perfectly. So now that we have seemed to have a good, seem to have it under, under wraps, I think it's going to be important to start maybe to re, re as time goes by to kind of revisit some of the episodes that the, the, we didn't really produce very, very well. And that's just because it was, this was all new to, to me. So the, what I want to do today in Pastor Jim's absence is I want to revisit a quote that we actually talked about on the very first episode of Jesus, Dietrich, and Me. So if uh, if you listened to that podcast episode already and you don't really care to listen to me, that's totally fine. You can t- turn this off. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's fitting because it was fitting 
during the time that we talked about it, you know, a month and a half or a year and a half ago, I think it's fitting now. And certainly it was fitting uh, during Dietrich's time as well. But I think it's, it's never, it's never a good idea to forget a, this specific quote. Um, you know, I, let me rephrase that. That was a really weird way to phrase. It. I don't know why I said it that way. It's a good idea to revisit this particular quote uh, and and kind of what that means for us today as Christians. Because I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of weeks, um, what is the what is the church's response in the face of injustice? And you know, we're like it or not, we're we're living in a in an age where uh, the church is under attack. Um, our freedoms are actually being compromised. I know that people are, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, freedom this and freedom that. And, you know, you can have your freedoms taken away from you if, you know, it's provided that it's, you know, it's for the gospel. And I would say no, because the gospel is about freedom and and, and there is freedom in the gospel and, and none, none of that should be, should be compromised. So, but that's maybe a topic that we can, maybe we'll dive into as, as we go. But I did want to revisit this episode, and it's going to – if what I actually did was I asked Pastor Jim before he went on, went on his mission trip to Guatemala was to actually go back and dig and find the, um, the script that he had converted. He had taken the actual audio and turned it into a, a printed script. So I'm going to pull some points that we talked about from that very first episode – and because uh, that it was like I said before, that was a really poorly recorded episode. Uh, still got our points across, but wanted to wanted to do that. So, going to talk about that and as things have progressed, how things have changed. I kind of poke my poke put my poke my nose in that and just kind of see where our discussion today goes. I know it's not really a discussion; it's more of a monologue. Like I said, if if you're if you're bored with that or you remember exactly what we talked about on the first episode, then you don't have to do that. Or if you'd rather listen to that first episode and listen to Pastor Jim, but we're going to be talking about a lot about the same stuff. So, with all of that being said, let us dive into the quotation that we're going to be looking at today. I think it's it's incredibly ironic. Um, we began the that first episode talking about who we are at the family of God and kind of how long that we've been there, why we exist. And then I say something really dumb. I say that we're going to try to keep this podcast between 30 and 40 minutes. <laughs> and uh, clearly we, you know, some episodes have been like that, but I think it's like one out, one or two out of 53 or 55 or however many episodes, because some of these were two-part episodes, but um, it's not actually a 30-minute podcast. It's more like an hour, and that's okay. I'm hoping my goal is to be right around 45 minutes today. But anyway, so we talked about that, and then we dive right into it. We dive right into Dietrich. We dive right into his quote, which might be one of his most famous individual quotes outside of when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. This might be one of his most famous. And it says this. He says, We as Christians are not simply to not simply to bandage the wounds of the victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And now for context for, for this for this quotation, uh, this would have been in early 30s when uh, when Adolf Hitler was climbing into power. And I think sometimes people forget that he didn't just bully his way into power. I mean, he certainly did some manipulation. He certainly, um, he certainly, you know, used fear as a tactic to get himself elected. 
and he but that's that's exactly what happened though he he did not he did not overtake any throne he was elected to be chancellor of germany so uh the, the holocaust here had had not yet happened um, but a lot of bad things were still happening to the jewish people and what hitler would do um slowly very slowly step by step he was turning uh, the, the German Jews into what we might call stateless people, S-T-A-T-S-T-A-T-E-L-E-S-S, stateless, stateless people. And stateless people for, for them would have had no rights. They would have had uh, no protection under the law. Uh, and, and what ends up happening is that this, this whole idea of making the German Jews into stateless people, this is going to culminate at, uh, in the Kristallnacht, in 1938, where complete uh, complete persecution has gone uh, has gone mainstream, so it's it's just become it becomes the norm. There it be, there's nothing there's nothing wrong about this anymore. Uh, once 1938 hits, so as a stateless person, uh, German government could take uh, could take property, uh, could take jobs, uh, could. Uh, could take uh, the dignity of people at will. Could uh, anti-Semitism was uh, was rife in Germany since the since the Middle Ages, but uh, this was this was different. This was not just um, I'm to say this. I, I I'm trying to figure out the best way. This wasn't your run of the mill uh, anti-Semitism. It it was much different. It was it was not that Judaism was objectionable. It was the Jewish blood. It was actually the blood of people that was objectionable. We might say that um, that simply being Jewish, that Jewish DNA, was considered to be a crime. And uh, many Jews were atheists, uh, but a considerable number were Lutheran, and that's really what got Dietrich's uh, got Dietrich's attention. Uh, the Nazi powers were were removing Christians out of their congregations, and they were forbidding the churches to have really to have anything to do with these with these Jews. So to understand, I think, the, the social side of, of Dietrich, um, something that you may not know, uh, first part of, of the 30s, so like, I think it was like 30 or 31, uh, Dietrich actually, actually spent some time in New York. He spent some time overseas over, over here in, in this country at uh, Union Theological Seminary, where he, he noted that the, the students and the faculty were uh, they were uninterested and uninformed, actually, about about basic Christianity. Uh, the school there was uh, was really kind of a hotbed for uh, for social experimentation. However, as little as that impressed Dietrich, um, he was befriended by by a fellow student who happened to be black, and um, he was a member of the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And the pastor there, someone that you may or may not know, uh, was Pastor Adam Clayton Powell. And at this church, uh, Dietrich was, he knows being absolutely blown away by the music, by the preaching, by the vibrant faith of the congregation. Uh, he got involved as a lay leader there. Uh, he, uh, he was teaching Sunday school. Now, remember, this is in an all-black environment, um, I imagine that I imagine that Dietrich in Germany um, probably didn't meet or talk to very many black folks. Um, but he writes home about their sense of community here uh, in the midst of very hard circumstances, which not only were they in the middle of the oppression, but they were also uh, during the Jim Crow laws. And as 
as Dietrich uh, was traveling and made some some road trips with with his black friend in the to places like Atlanta, uh, he got to experience um, another side of, of oppression of of the African Americans, which I mentioned before just now is the the Jim Crow laws, which an absolute an absolutely um, vile thing that that happened and, and experienced and. Um, we said that Dietrich experienced this racism. He experienced this oppression. Um, but he didn't really experience it. He, uh, more so he witnessed it um, as he traveled with with black Christian friends. And I think it's important to notice and to note that um, witnessing and experiencing are, are two different things. Um, seeing is certainly not the same thing as undergoing racism. And I think sometimes in, in America today, we, we try to experience something that's not there. And that, that does not mean that, that racism is not alive and well, because it is. Um, but I think sometimes when we talk about this experiencing and witnessing, there are a lot of people who think that they're experiencing oppression when they're actually not, uh, but but they're actually they're witnessing it, so they think that they're they think that they're experiencing it, and and that's that's a little bit of uh, it's just it's just really important to notice the difference. Dietrich was not experiencing oppression here; he was not experiencing racism here. He was witnessing it, um, and, and and he chose to to do something about it, and he he was kind of he was convicted of his own of his own beliefs, and and. And this helped to uh, facilitate a, a quote that, that we just talked about, which again is uh, that Christians are not to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but to drive a spoke into the wheel itself or drive a stake into the wheel itself. And and this quote really comes from Dietrich witnessing this racism and, and witnessing the, the horrible things that were happening in the South during the Jim Crow era. And, and, and he was so convicted by this and so disgusted by this that he couldn't just be, a, be on the sidelines. And I remember when, when we were talking about this uh, last year, yeah, last year, last summer, like last June or something like that, um, you know, this was, this, was right, this was right after the, the incident with, with George Floyd in, in Minnesota. And, you know, and, and protests were going crazy all over the country and people were burning buildings and looting and, and, and killing cops and, and killing other people just in the name, in the name of racism, in the name of anti-racism and, uh, and people using, again, again, people who haven't experienced racism, but may have witnessed various parts of racism over their lives that, you know, using that, especially if you're white and you're doing this in the name of racism uh, or anti-racism, uh, you you were you were creating more problems for yourself, and we saw that. And 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 so w- w- those are the kinds of things that Dietrich was seeing that said, "Hey, if I'm witnessing evil, if I'm witnessing something that I know is wrong, if I'm witnessing something that is an- that is anti-Christian, dare I say, satanic and evil, then I need to do something about it. As a as a Christian, it is my obligation. It is my duty. It is not good enough just to tell somebody that I'm praying for them. It's not good enough to just give them 
a band-aid. It's I need to do something to stop it. I need to slam a stake through these these wheels and stop the oppression of evil, to stop the 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 injustices that are happening in any way that I can. Even if I even if I only stop it a little bit, I need to do everything that I can with as many people as I can to stop these injustices. So that's really kind of where where Dietrich is when, when he says this quote about driving a spoke into the to the wheel and uh, and Pastor Jim, I remember he was talking about the the imagery that I think that Dietrich is is calling upon, and what he's what he's hoping for from you know for people to kind of recall is he's hoping to recall maybe like a classic Hollywood Hollywood Western scene um, at some point that you know that this wagon that would be careening down the road, right? Maybe maybe horses are, are frightened by gunshot or something like that. Somewhere in front of the wagon, they're oblivious to the danger. Uh, would be a mother and a child, not really, not really aware of what is happening. Um, but, but what was happening is that the the rider, um, I'm sorry, not the rider, the hero, would see this wagon rolling down the hill, rolling towards the fire, rolling towards the lake, rolling towards the oncoming train, whatever it may be. The hero would then ride down alongside the wagon and be able to stop it just in time. Whether that's taking a stick, a, a log, or whatever, uh, the German, the, this German wagon that Dietrich is talking about here is a wagon that is heading for that is heading for destruction. It's heading for terror. It's heading for evil in in the face of the, of the Nazis. And so this wagon that he's talking about is not actually riderless, um, and it wasn't it wasn't an impending accident. The wagon was manned and intentionally setting out to harm people. So rather than just being like a runaway a runaway carriage, this has been this has been uh, f- facilitated. It's been it's been driven. It's been uh, it's been. It's all, it's all been premeditated. This is all part of what is happening. And I could actually make the argument that this is exactly what is happening to us today in, in America too. Um, and I know that's, that probably is going to rough, ruffle a lot of feathers, but I think, I think you are, I think you are fooling yourself if you don't think that similar forces are at play, not, not necessarily the same as Nazi Germany, but I think you are certainly seeing very similar things where you've got you have you have a rider on a wagon that is driving a, that is driving a wagon of people all the way to an impending accident or a or a, or a, you know, a, a just a scary dangerous evil place and so we have as Christians have an obligation to stop it and, and Dietrich in this sermon that he gives about this where he makes this quotation, um, what he's doing in this full context is he's kind of flushing out a three-stage plan. So we, if you if you're like me, you like you like to have concrete steps. You don't just like to say, "Well, go do something," and, and then you just kind of don't really know. But have have some concrete steps of things that you can actually do. So Dietrich does this too, and the first part of his plan for driving a spoke into the wheel of injustice and stopping these evil forces. For him, it's Germany. For us, excuse me, you name it. You can probably think of a bunch of different things that, that we as Christians are called upon to stop. Uh, but the first thing would be practical action. The first thing that he talks about is practical action. So what he's saying is we are not to leave the victim in the street to go chase down the driver of this wagon. In other words, uh, we, we, we can look to the story like the Good Samaritan. I remember uh, the Good Samaritan, uh, in, the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the, the Jewish man is beaten and left for dead. Uh, and, and the Good Samaritan does not 
uh, does not go after the people that he doesn't try to find the people that that beat him up. He doesn't try to go after the priest and the Levite that abandoned him. What he does is is he just stoops down to this this man and he helps him. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on his on his wounds. Uh, he puts him on his own animal and takes him to the inn. He takes care of him. He he addresses the immediate need that's in front of him. He doesn't uh, he doesn't say, well, this person deserved it. He doesn't say that he had it coming. Uh, and I think that that's sometimes we we certainly say that. Uh, to people that have been wronged, well, they deserve what they got, and just because, quote unquote, they they deserve that, which in Scripture we we don't. Uh, we, that's actually it's actually very contrary to what Jesus teaches, uh, loving your enemies. Uh, that's all what we should be doing, rather than say, saying that they deserve it. But the Samaritan doesn't go after that those people. He he comes and he addresses the need because the person that's in front of him, whether it's his enemy or or not, the person is hurting. The person is broken. The person is left for dead. The person needs to be needs healing and needs help. And so he does that. He's focused what is right what is right in front of him, and he has that compassion. And I love that that word compassion. And I know that we have talked about this this compassion word on the podcast before. Um, this is really where the ministry of family of God is. This is the, the motivation. So this word compassion in Greek is actually really, I would argue that it's, it's a biological verb. It's not necessarily just a just a noun um, because the word compassion, the, the implications of this word mean that you are hurting to your core. Your guts are hurting. Your guts are moving on the inside because you are so bothered by what is happening around you. And so you've got, you've got this, this Samaritan being moved with compassion to act like, because you can't have compassion and not act. Otherwise, it's not compassion, right? You see this with Jesus too. He sees the 5,000. He's the 4,000. He's moved with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he moves. He acts. He loves. That's what, it, that's what he does because action is always with compassion. And then you see this with the prodigal son, right? You see this. He, he sees his son. The, the father sees the son and he has compassion on him. And he springs into, he springs into action. He runs towards him. Um, the Jesus encountering the widow of Nain, he's filled with compassion for her because he sees her pain. He, his guts hurt for her. And really, I think you can make the argument that the, that compassion is, is the base of the gospel where God sees, sees man, sees, sees a broken world, a completely a world that is dead in sin. And he is moved with compassion to the point where he takes on Jesus, he take, takes Jesus and, um, and, and Jesus comes to us. He doesn't take Jesus. Jesus comes to us. He sends Jesus. He gives Jesus. Jesus becomes one of us, and he can't not die because Jesus has compassion for us. The Father has compassion for us, and, and he cannot not act. And that's, that's really what, what this compassion is. So you can actually make, make the argument that this practical action that Dietrich is talking about, when, you, when we see brokenness and injustice, when we see things that are that are evil and wrong like our innards should be hurting so much to the point where we have to do something we have to do something and to go back going back to Dietrich then uh, talking about uh, the kind of what comes after practical action so there's another there's another thing that can happen so it's not it's not necessarily action but it's actually it's actually voice so after practical action the next step for Dietrich is what he what we might call prophetic voice. 
uh, which is which is not speaking truth in the modern sense of speaking truth to power. Uh, all too all too often, I think, uh, and Pastor Hill mentioned this. I know I because this is one of my biggest pet peeves. Talking about my truth, I don't actually care what your truth is. So if if you come to me and say, well, my truth is that. This, 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 and this. I'm like, okay, but is that God's truth? Because if it's not God's truth, then I don't care what your truth is. And 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 as a prophetic voice, what Dietrich is talking about, we need to understand as Christians that that we have prophetic voice, and that we are called to speak to to things that are not right, and we have to understand that that might come with consequences. Uh, so I think of. Um, I think that as you know, as we're called to speak truth of the word of God to power and to call people to repentance, think about you know those that are that are in power over us, they, those that are trying to make dictations and mandates that are that are not right. We have an obligation to speak truth in the power in the power of God, and. Just like Nathan did to David. David, who had a gross sin when he had Uriah killed after he slept with Bathsheba and conceived with her. Well, she conceived with him, rather. And and Nathan comes to him, tells him the situation, says, what would you do? David gives his answer, and Nathan says, well, you're the man. He had no idea what, what, that, what, that, what that could have happened. David could have had him killed. David could have had him run off. David could have thrown him his, his butt in prison. Could have been a very terminal conversation, but we have to always remember that prophets, especially in the in the in the Old Testament, because there's really no New Testament prophets, but prophets were that that spoke God's truth. Rarely did things go well for them. Uh, you know, Jeremiah and so many others they they spoke at such a great cost, and uh, and became martyrs. And it's important to remember that that word martyr comes from the the Greek that is based in the root word for witness. And so, for instance, when, when Daniel refuses to pray only to the king, he got a one-way ticket to the lion's den. Turned out to be a, a round trip, but he, he, didn't, he certainly didn't know that. And uh, I'm also drawn to the, the three men, right? Uh, I almost said uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny. That's, uh, that's the VeggieTales version <laughs> in the scripture. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to, to worship the golden statue in the... Uh, in the um, in the Veggie Tales, it's the I think it's the Golden Bunny. Is that right? The Golden Bunny. Anyway, so they're they're told to worship this idol, and they say no. They publicly witnessed, and they were publicly thrown into the fiery furnace because of their witness. They 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 stood on God's truth. They stood for what they knew was right in the face of oppression, and they were they had to suffer the consequences. And what ended up happening was God delivered them from their consequences. We see this with with Peter and John as well in in the Old Test or in the in the New Testament in Acts. It's Acts four, Acts three or four, um, when when they're preaching in the in the temple courts and uh, and they're told to to not do that anymore, and they still go and do it, uh, and they're thrown in prison for it. And you, Paul, same thing. Paul's thrown in prison because he's pissed off so many people, but he still continues to do this because he knows. Uh, not to mention Paul was, you know, beaten senseless a number of times too. Uh, he's probably the only one outside of Jesus that probably re- that suffered the most. Um, but he he knew that 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 standing on the word of God, that proclaiming the word of God as he was called to do was going to come at a cost. And I think for us, it's important to to be able to to stand up, to to not back down, 
even when people are telling you to back down, when people are giving mandates, when people are requiring us to do certain things that actually do compromise the freedom of the Christian and, and people having these dogmatic statements of, of, well, you know, if you, if you really love Jesus or if you really love, love your neighbor, then you'll do X, Y, and Z. I, I just, that's not right. And that's not, that's, that's evil. There's ways of doing things that can be done in a loving manner. And, and having, having these, again, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to launch into this big political thing because I could. And if you actually want to have that conversation with me, please, please reach out to me personally, individually. But I, I told Pastor Jim that I would not do this on, because, and not take advantage of the fact that he's not here. But there are so many things that are, that are, that we are told are good that are actually evil. And when we recognize the fact that it's evil, when we recognize that things are doing more evil than they are good, we have a, we have a responsibility then to do what these men did, to do what Dietrich does, to do what Rakshak and Benny do, to do what Daniel does, to do what Peter and John do, and stand up in the face of oppression and continue to preach truth to continue to preach gospel, that Jesus lives, that Jesus, that our confidence is in Jesus, that our freedom is in Jesus. We have a responsibility to do that. We are called to do that as Christians. And if if we do that, because we have to know, because the next part is going to be resistance, we have to know that if we don't give in, if we do stand up, if we use prophetic voice, then we are subject to the governing authorities. That's Romans 13. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to obey, but it does mean that if you disobey, then you are subject to the consequences. And none of the apostles would would say that. They they willingly went to prison. They willingly did these things because they knew what they were doing was right. And so we get to the third stage of Dietrich. So the first stage was practical action, doing something about it right away, what's about what's in front of you, not not looking beyond, but actually working at what, looking at what's in front of you. You've got prophetic voice, which is actually speaking out against these injustices. And then you've got passive resistance. Passive resistance. So Bonhoeffer was, uh, Bonhoeffer was a big fan of Mahatma Gandhi and actually wanted very badly to meet him. Uh, because Gandhi's uh, passive resistance o- overcame the evil of the British occupation of India, but uh, not in bon- Bonhoeffer's lifetime. But I think that you can say with assurance that Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther King Jr. are on a continuum in the development of passive resistance. Um, not that long ago, there was uh, there's a passive resistance movement in China in um, uh, the Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square. So it was about two months, uh, 1989-ish, uh, about 100,000 students. They occupied the uh, the square asking for freedom of press and freedom of speech through a hunger strike. And demonstrations, uh, they, they broke out in 80 other different cities. Um, that resistance did not, did not go very well. Violence ended up breaking out as uh, other students were trying to defend themselves. And I think five to 6,000 people ended up dead. Um, one Chinese soldier was killed. Uh, many remember many remember a scene when uh, when the government sent tanks in to end this movement. Like enough is enough. We're not we're done with you guys doing this passive resistance. Uh, and there was there was um, there's a solitary unarmed Chinese man who is standing in front of the column of tanks. And what he does is he stops the first tank, but then when he tries to go around it, he continues to insert his body in the way. Now none of us know what happened to him, but I think. I think we uh, we could guess that it wasn't it wasn't too good for him. But he's he was stopping. He stopped in front of him. He's standing in front of the tanks, 
and and the tank is unwilling to to run him over. So the tank tries to go around him. Well, this this man moves in front of the tank. He was not going to let the tank pass him. He says, "Fine, you want to pass me? You're gonna have to come over me." And we don't know what happened, but we can probably infer that that's exactly what the tank did. Excuse me. Talking about myself gets to be a little uh, <laughs> gets to be a little a little dry sometimes. I apologize. So just a just as a point of reference, I think for us, it's important to note that passive resistance does not work well in totalitarian society. So you look at um, you know resisting passively under uh, Stalin. If he didn't if he didn't kill you, you'd end up in one of those camps in Siberia. Um, passive resistance only really works in a society that's based on democratic values, um, at least the foundation of Christian values, uh, democratic ideals stopped slavery in in England, um, not by a war, but by the relentless life of the work of a man named William Wilberforce. Uh, may, many of you may may know this this man. He was a member of parliament, and he was an evangelical Christian dedicating his life to the abolition of slavery and discipleship. He was one relentless voice that was much opposed as uh, that, that Jesus used to end slavery here. And unfortunately, after three days, three days after signing the, uh, the abolition of slavery law, um, he passed away. But this total, this uh, passive resistance in a totalitarian society in a dictatorship uh, in a, everything that's ruled by government, it's not good, which is why I'm fearful uh, of what is to come because I, I'm my one of my biggest fears is that that's exactly where we are heading in this coming age. I don't know where our country is going to be when my, when I have kids. Um, but as of right now, we are still loosely based on democratic values, uh, being a democracy. Um, and that's why we can still passively resist. We can still, we can still resist the evil and still, you know, be, be okay. Um, but in Germany, in the Nazi time, uh, you know, it's, it's important to ask, did the church resist Hitler? Did the church resist Adolf Hitler? And I would say it was feebly, <laughs> feebly if at all, is, is the answer, unfortunately. Um, the churches in Germany, they were, they were Lutheran, they were Roman Catholic, they were Reformed. Uh, in many ways, they, they all compromised um, or sold out in some way, shape, or form to Hitler. Uh, they, they experienced what uh, Martin Niemöller, a uh, Lutheran pastor, did. He was, he was a Niemöller was a early supporter, and he spent many meetings with Hitler in the equivalent of the Oval Office. And what he wrote was, he said, "I hated what the growing atheistic movement, which was fostered and promoted by the Social Democrats and the communists, and the communists, their hostility towards the church made me pin my hopes on Hitler for a while." actually up until about 1934, and for that mistake, now I, and not me alone, but thousands of other persons suffer. He did not stand on the word of God like Dietrich did, but what he did choose, what he, what he did do was choose the lesser of two, of two evils, um, which ended up, of course, being, being a bad guess because Hitler certainly turned out to be the greater of, the greater of two, of two evils. So, Niemöller was, was, he gave in to Hitler because he thought that it was the right thing to do, uh, and it turned out to be something absolutely terrible. And I think that there are a lot of churches nowadays that are, this is kind of how they're treating uh, the, the government, trying to get involved in every aspect of our lives, making these, making mandates, making requirements, 
all that stuff. I, I think this is, it's a, you know, we, we look at this and we go, oh, well, we'll take the lesser of two evils, but we don't know what's going to come. We should take a page from history and from church history even and, and be able to to learn from that because at the end of the day, putting your trust in government, your entire trust in government is not a position that I want to be in and I know you don't want to be in that either. This kind of thing caught up with Niemöller in uh, 1937. Even after he even after he gave in, he ended up spending th- seven years in a concentration camp um, for his resistance after after he had given in, uh, which which leads us to another Niemöller story. As he as he was led from prison to the courtroom, he traveled in a tunnel escorted by a policeman, and as they walked, the policeman spoke these words continuously to Niemöller. He says, "The name of the Lord is a strong tower; the righteous run into it, and they are saved." And it was that that actually filled Niemöller with hope as he faced uh, his certain his certain conviction. So, again, we, we can learn a lot from this passive resistance. I think that's that's a very underrated, very underrated part of, of the Christian. And I think that it's something that we need to be able to use and something that we should not be afraid to do, especially in the face of oppression and in the face, in the face of evil. One of the things that I was... Uh, thinking about because resistance is not always enough, and sometimes the church actually needs to fully act. and And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But I was thinking about um, because I'm looking at the script here, what we talked about in the first episode. I told a story about one of my classes, uh, the, one of our class discussions while I was in the seminary. And one of the things that one of the questions that got brought up was, "Is the church doing enough? Does the church care enough?" about what is happening in the world to really do something about it. And it's it's tough to, to think of it like this because you don't want to think of it in a legalistic way. You don't want to think of, is the church doing enough for salvation, for my salvation? Am I doing enough as a Christian for my salvation? It's not that it's not about that at all. It's what it really is, is are you are you doing what you are called to do? Are you doing enough to stop? evil? Are you doing enough as a Christian with Jesus fighting for you? Are you doing enough to be, to, to, to break the cycles of injustice, to break, to break cycles of evil, to stand up to evil, to, to make bold declarations in standing in the promises of Jesus and in the commands of Jesus? Are you doing enough? And that's, that's tough because we, particularly as Lutherans, you know, we, we recognize all the time that we're saved by grace through faith, but we darn well better understand that even though we're not saved by our works, our faith is never alone. Faith and works, they, they, they must coexist. They can, one cannot exist without the other. And unfortunately for us, I think that the reason that we don't act, the reason that we don't serve, the reason that we don't, uh, that we don't resist, the reason that we don't do more is because we are afraid to put ourselves in a position of uncomfortability or, or a position of vulnerability. And I think sometimes, maybe if you're listening to this and you're going, this guy's a whack job, uh, that's fine. But you know, think about, think about all of the injustices that you experience on a day-to-day basis that you just walk by and turn the other, and turn the other way. Pretend that you don't see it. That's not enough. That is, that is a sin. And that is something that needs to be repented of. I'm, I'm just as guilty of this as the next person. But that's, that's what I'm saying. When I say that the church is not 
doing enough, this is what I mean. There is always something that we can do. You can always speak up. You can always resist. You can always say no. You can always teach. You can always love. Always. And sometimes that love is going to come at a cost. That's why following Jesus has a cost. And for some people like Dietrich, it's death. Dietrich, Stephen, Paul, all, all, darn near all the apostles, they, there's a cost. All these, all these, these books of martyrs that because of their witness, they are killed because they were acting, because they were, they were standing up, because they were being truthful. They, there is a cost for that. And for us, there's a cost too. Right now, I think it's coming, but right now it's not death. Right now, it's just some uncomfortable looks and maybe losing a couple of followers on Facebook. And, and if that's the cost, of, of standing in, in the love of Jesus, then fine. If that means that you don't get to go to your grocery store, fine. If that means that you have to stay home, fine. If that means this is, but if you are standing on the word of God and you as a pastor are closing down your church because you're afraid of what the government might say or do, the cost of going to jail is very small compared to what the cost of outright denying the commands of Jesus. And that's, I just think it's something to be thinking about. And I would actually argue that, um, that the that the church there's 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 never there's never enough for what we can do. There's never enough. There's always something. There's always something more that we can do when it comes to loving our neighbors. And like I said, love looks different. Love isn't just it's not condoning sin. It's actually being willing to call out sin and call people, especially people in power, to to repentance. Another Bonhoeffer quote that, that Pastor Hill and I had discussed in this episode uh, was uh, this good, this one, and I really like this one. He says, I need the Christ that is in you, and you need the Christ that is in me. And I would say that uh, our neighborhoods, our communities, uh, they desperately need the Christ that's in us, just as we needed the Christ in that word that we've all been taught, uh, hopefully from a, from a very young age, uh, which is love. Uh, love, not just like I said, not not just to 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 be you know that lovey dovey, uh, open arms kind of love, but actually the sacrificial love. We're not we're not just. It's more than just praying. Come, Lord Jesus. It's actually getting into the trenches, knowing that Christ is with you, fighting for you, fighting with you, and fighting for you, knowing that that battle is won. Uh, and and of course we we know that. As, as theologians of the cross, we know that it's, again, not it's not God that needs our works, but our neighbor needs our works. Our neighbors that are being oppressed by, by, by government authorities, our neighbors that are being oppressed by, by various social injustices, they need our works. They need your works. So they, people need to see compassion. They need to see love. They need to see care. That, that flows from our hearts. And I think because we are sinful people, my, like I said, m- myself included, I, I do not excuse myself from any of this. Uh, we, it just doesn't come out. Uh, we, we don't show compassion. We don't show love. We don't show care. Pastor Hill had, has a quote that he has used. I know he used in this podcast, but he's, he's used um, in a sermon before. We are called to be the church invisible, but not actually be invisible. So we are called as a body of believers in the invisible church but if we are not, if we are invisible, then we're Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls us useless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls us calls the church that doesn't that doesn't act, that doesn't serve, that doesn't stand on the word of God, that doesn't love, 
that you are that you are useless. And if you are a Christian that comes to church and you sit in the pew and you listen to the word of God and you receive the sacrament, you receive your absolution, and then you go home and you take a nap, and you don't that doesn't that doesn't change the way that you do anything. Then I would say that it's that you really need, as Pastor Hill would say, really need to do a gut check, and and that's really tough, for, I think, for us to come to grips with because Christianity actually does cost us something when we lay down our lives, when we are crucified with Christ. That's that's what it costs us. Our salvation doesn't cost anything, but it does cost something in the same sense, right? This is this is the whole theme of this whole this whole podcast. So so for us. For us, we need to make continue to rely on the power of Jesus and not be silent. When things are going wrong, when evil appears to be winning, when 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 stuff happens that breaks your heart, when stuff happens that is just flat out not right, don't sit on the sidelines. Get suited up. Put on the full armor of God, which was this last week's gospel lesson or epistle lesson, and go to war. Go to war. Go fight. And that's knowing that that Jesus is battling with you and for you. He has already won the war. So what are we afraid to fight for? This this whole Christian bystander thing, it it drives me, it drives me up a wall. And and the silence for a lot of people when it comes to all these things and just actively giving in to what, to what society is demanding of us, it's, it's absolutely, uh, it's the silence is deafening to me. And Dietrich has a quote about this. He says that silence in the face of evil is in and of itself evil. And so if we know that something is wrong and we just stand by and let it happen, uh, we are just as evil as, as the, as the person that is invoking that, that evil. Because it's not just it's not just racism, it's not just police violence, it's not just it's not just vaccine requirements, it's not just abortion being being advocated for. It's it's not it's not just that it's not just those things. It's not just homelessness and not being t- and people not being taken care of. It's not just that. It's all there are all types of brokenness, all types of sin, all kinds of evil that we need to speak up against. And that is my encouragement for you. It's the fact that that we need the Christ in others and others need the Christ in us. Bonhoeffer also had you know he had a, he had a saying too about um, things that things that exist are worth things that do exist are worth standing up for. These are the things: peace, social justice, and Christ, which means standing for peace and against violence by either side, standing up for the social justice and passive resistance. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, calling for repentance and restoration instead of shaming and blaming and punishing. He says, "You will not be safe, or you will not be comfortable or praised for standing up for Christ." Now we know that that God doesn't need us to stand up for Him, right? Because He is all powerful. But there is a sense of of being being defenders and being warriors for the gospel, and and I think that that's I think that that's fine. Um, you know, standing up, standing up for Jesus is you know, stand up, stand up for Jesus, right? It's not just I think it's too often we want to take the stand of well, we'll just trust Jesus. Like no, we 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 need to we need to be active in calling to repentance. We need to be active in forgiving and active in loving. And I think too quick we're we are to to shame and to blame and to punish, which is what what Dietrich had had said here. So ultimately, I guess what my prayer is for you is I'm running up against 
time. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you've stopped listening to my, to my monologue here because you're, um, <laughs> cause you're tired of, of listening to me. You're tired of my, of my rantings. Certainly if you know me in person, uh, you've heard a lot of similar things. I'm, I'm incredibly exhausted. I'm incredibly frustrated um, by the way that, that Christians, the way that pastors, the way that Christian leaders, the way that uh, government leaders are handling a lot of different things. Uh, and I do pray, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, I do know that we have a calling. I do know that Christians have a calling not to sit on the sidelines, that we have a calling to fight. And, and knowing that, like I said, the battle is won. Jesus, de- the, Jesus himself declares that the battle is won. Victory is yours. And so when it comes to these, these little battles that we have here on earth, what are you afraid to stand up for? What are you afraid to passively resist for? Jesus is with you. Jesus has already defeated it. So that doesn't mean that it gets to just run rampant. We trust in the one who has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. And so now calling evil evil, calling spades a spade, and actually, and actually resisting evil, but being and being subject to what could happen, knowing full well that that this resistance, knowing full well that that doing things that that we are commanded to do and commanded to teach in scripture might land us in prison. These are things that that I think in my lifetime are coming, and we need to be ready for it. And the reason that I think that we can all be ready for it, and again, and I know this is not going to be. This is not. It's a lot easier said than done because when push comes to shove and you're staring down the barrel of of the gun that's pointed at you, it's gonna. It's very difficult. But Christ is risen. Christ has defeated. Christ is with you. He is standing with you in the battle. So go fight. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so again, you think about this this text. This this um, this quote that we are not just called to bandage the wounds. Of, of the people, but to also drive a spoke or drive a stake into the wheels of injustice. The wheels are turning, they're turning fast, they're accelerating. It's time to pull out the stake, it's time to jam it through the wheels. And it's my prayer of encouragement today that you are encouraged by this. If you have questions or comments or I said something that really irritated you, please let me know. Uh, let's have a talk, let's, let's talk, let's go get coffee, let's go Let's go grab a beer. Let's do whatever, whatever you want to do. But uh, I'm urging you. This is this is a war cry to to stand up and to be willing to fight for what is true, for what is for what is right, what is noble, and and to be able to to stand firmly on the promises that have been made in Christ Jesus. So. Have a great week, everybody. Pastor Hill is going to be back next week, and we are coming up on Labor Day, so I hope that everyone has a has a restful weekend. I know that people are back in school. My wife is back in school, and uh, you know we're we're praying for for all those kids and and for safe for safe school years. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure that you go to our website www.fogdetroit.com. You can check out some some content over there. We have some various articles. We have uh, some videos. I do a video every every Monday uh, based on the text from the Sunday before. Um, and you can see ways to get involved. You can see ways to get uh, to donate and things like that. Uh, and we are so grateful for each and every person that does that uh, already. We cannot do what we do without you. So everyone have a great weekend. If no one has told you yet, God loves you and so do we. Take care.